What is this? It's the Bible. It's actually an image on the right. It's actually a collection of books. 66 books, 40 different authors, written over a period of 1600 years. And like any collection of books by different authors, you would naturally expect, and I think we forget this when we read the Bible, you'd expect different genres, different styles of writing. The Bible is an incredibly complex book because it's written by 40 different authors and each one brings a different style, a different genre, a different personality. And if we treat it as just one book, we get really lost. What are some of the genres of scripture? I'll give you an example. We have poetry. What are the genres that we have? We have, yeah, autobiographical, not autobiographical, biographical of the life of Jesus, four of them together. Pardon. We have songs. We have, have I said, wisdom. Uh, we have romance. There's a whole book just focusing on seemingly, again, seemingly romance, but there's something much deeper going on. It's a book of different genres, and it can't all be read the same. It really can't. It is a complex, complex book. And what we're asking when we're reading it is, what genre of text is this? And here's the thing about the genres, is that even within one book, it can change. Genesis, some argue that the first three chapters, two chapters, are of a different genre to the rest. The rest is literal, the, the, pri the primary, the first couple of chapters are po poetic, so some say. Can you see what we're saying? So genre is important and it's, not, and it's nowhere more important than the book of Revelation. I'm going to touch on a couple of things Roger said last week in case you weren't here and just to fill in. So when we were picking up the book of Revelation, of all the books in the Bible, it is the most complex. And it's the most complex because... It's the hardest to spot the genre and the changes in genre. Okay? Because even within that one book, even in the way I'm going to read it to you today, it hasn't got a single genre. Chapters 1 to 3 are different to the rest of the book, I'd argue, for example. And the latter chapter perhaps different to the middle sections. So genre is important. And when we pick up the book of, book of Revelation, well, the next slide, we're faced with another issue, is that... There's at least four different ways theologians and scholars interact with this book. And, the, and these four, I think Roger touched on these last week, really do sum up the, the major ways different groups of Christians read the Bible. Now, it's very often scholars can read those two together because it's such a difficult book to decipher. I'll give you some examples of what these are. So, preterism. It's just, this is the way of reading Revelation. It's all about what happened in the first couple of decades of Christian history, from the time of Jesus' death until the sacking of the city by the Romans. So, preterists argue that all of Revelation is just a history of those early years of the church, just done in fantastic imagery. Uh, uh, let's go to uh, uh, this history one there. That's a group of people who read it as future history. And you may have heard some of this. It was in, in my early Christian uh, church where people would look at the signs of the times like the gathering of the EU or the, or the rise of the papacy and, and they would say that Revelation is pointing 
to events, major events that are coming up in our world. Idealism. I don't know if you remember any of these from Roger last week. Idealism argues that actually the book of Revelation, it's mainly from chapter 4 onwards, mainly themes and images that point to truths about the present Christian life. That's idealism. And the last one is futurism. And they argue, uh, and again, this is another popular one from my history, where all of Revelation is about the future. All of it. And they read it all completely literally. Which is, excuse me, which means they will take something like the beast and actually argue for dragons, literal dragons, literal beasts, literal creatures with multiple heads. So the futurist re-revelation as all literal. So of the four, most people come into one camp or, or two or one or two. We're, we're going to take one, and I'm going to present the Bible to you in one of these naturally, because these are the four major ways of reading Revelation. And the one, and it's this one, it's the green one there, idealism. Does anyone remember what I said about that? Idealism, it's reading Revelation, chapter 4 onwards, as big picture. As images that are painting a big picture of the history of Christianity from the time of Jesus, his first coming, to the time of Jesus' second coming. And that's how we're going to look at it today and in a fortnight. This idealistic way is that it's painting big, broad pictures about the whole of Christianity from the time of Jesus to the time of his second coming, using pictures as metaphors and illustrations and examples. So that's where we're going. That's we'll give you a bit of idea. That's what I said to you. It may not be as exciting as, as my message to you this week sounded. You know, we're not going to be considering beasts and literal marks and things like that. But we are, according to that pattern, going to be looking at the history of all of Christianity. Now, another thing I want to say just before I continue is because there's at least four different ways of reading Revelation because it's such a difficult book, that there may be four sets of views in this room. And you may be sitting there thinking, actually, Montaz, you know, uh, the futurism, that's a very popular Pentecostal reading of the Bible, of Revelation. You may think, oh, that suits me, or, or the, the preterist view, or, or, or the historical view, whichever. And, that's, and I think what we want to say is, that's okay. You know, because there, no one can be certain quite how Revelation is meant to be read. And, and if you fall into one of those camps, go on, Nikki. So could, would it be all of them? Uh, it, it, well, it would be difficult, I think, to hold all together. But Nikki's got a point. Yes, perhaps some of it, it does. I'm going to argue today, some of it does relate to the early church. I'm going to even argue some of his future. Yes, you're right. There can be elements of each. And I think, so we'd be wise not fighting each other over these things. But at least I want to present to you the idealistic view because it sits the best with my understanding of the Bible from my study of it. And I, and I hope that, that you get something of that. Uh, but again, please, uh, don't shoot the pastor, okay? Uh, on this, we can have a hug. Well, not publicly. Okay, we can have a hug, okay? Uh, 
and disagree about these things. I'm going to start. I'm going to give you an example of, of the idealistic view and how it works. Here's an example. Here's Matthew. Would someone give me some water, please? I'd really appreciate that. Uh, so Matthew 2. Here's, here's a well-known passage of the Bible. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me and I too, that I too may worship him. That's Matthew 2. It's the Christmas story, yeah? Okay, now I want to show you what an idea, how an idealist reads Revelation. Because I want to argue that that history of Jerusalem and the birth of Jesus is what's been said in Revelation 12. Remember it says Revelation is covering all of history from Jesus to his second coming. And I want to argue Revelation 12.4 is that event. And this is how we're reading it. The dragon is a devil. Stood in front of Herod, uh, in front of the woman, that's Herod's henchman. Mary, who was about to give birth to, 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 uh, in Bethlehem, so that he may devour or destroy her child, Jesus, at the moment that he was born, the incarnation. Obviously, Herod's henchmen weren't there. They tried to kill him later. But can you see how an idealist is reading Revelation? He's reading big picture metaphors about the events from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. So that... So I'll give you another one. Here's uh, Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of the word. Okay, so can you see Revelation 12, 17? An idealist, and that's how we're going to look at it this morning, would read that and say... That is describing, remember, broad picture. Have a guess. What do you think that's describing? Sorry? Second coming. Potentially something else. Well, I'll give you a clue. What is your life like right now? What, what, is, a, what is a Christian life like in this year? Persecution, difficulties. Can you see what the... That's just a picture of the Christian life. Look, the dragon, the devil, is enraged at the woman, merely symbolic, but the church as a whole, and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. That is the church. Those who obey God's commandments, that's us. We want to hold to Jesus' testimony. That's us. Can you see? So an idealist will read those words and say, that's a broad picture of all of the history of the church. And so... And so can you see, in that reading, we, we, we don't end up with ghosts and goblins. We just end up with real Christian life. And that's why I think it is read like that. And, and read like that is the most pertinent, relevant to you and me. If it's all future, it has very real significance to me. If it's about us now, it explains why John wrote it and why Jesus preserved it because it's a very relevant book for us today. But that's how we're reading it. And again, look, if it doesn't make, if, if you can't quite swallow that, that's okay. That's okay. I was just going to give you a couple of verses there, Nikki, the next two, that where Jesus speaks, that sum up that view. In this world, we'll have trouble. And it's true, isn't it? But we'll begin. So let's look at Revelation 13. This is what you, this is hopefully what you came to hear. And we don't hear Montez's word. And I know Stephen Menwell. 
I trust we hear God's word. Okay, so the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Did someone get me some water? Here we go. Thank you. He even got my name on it. Good on you. Okay, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. So this is, this is his first ploy. Okay, so the dragon. So if I can just give you what some of the broad strokes look like. The dragon is a picture of the devil. And can you notice what he's doing here? He's summoning a beast. So he's summoning assistance. This is a picture of the devil summoning assistance. Notice he's coming out of the sea. I don't know if, again, you may have heard me say this when I've preached the latter chapters. The sea for the Israelites was a place of chaos. And so it's natural that he's summoning, summoning his help from what the Jews regarded as a place of chaos and strife. So this creature, this beast, is called by our archenemy, the devil, to assist him in what he wants to do. Okay, well, here's what we told about him. He had ten horns and seven heads and the ten crowns on his horns and each had a blasphemous name on it. I saw, that, sorry, the beast I saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Another thing that I'm going to throw in here is, is the imagery that we find in the Bible is full of imagery it's all, almost all, not all, or most of it comes from, where's this imagery found? Pardon? Thank you, Sylvia. Daniel and the rest of the Old Testament, almost all of the imagery in Revelation is from the Old Testament. Okay, it's another reason I think it's imagery, because it's, it's used as imagery in the Old Testament for certain. So, and he's obviously doing that because who is his audience? Who's John's first audience? People who are familiar with? The Old Testament. And so he uses, so can, you can see what John is doing. He's wanting to communicate truth. And so he, he wants to speak metaphorically because it's a writing style. Okay. And so the images he chooses are the ones that are familiar to Jewish people, familiar to people who read the Bible. So he's using Old Testament imagery. If we read Daniel 7, like Sylvia said, we see those four beasts there, Sylvia, that in Daniel 7. John is now using the same images. I want you to imagine, so, so what, what, if, you lived, if you lived in rural society and you came across, what is a lion to you? I know the lion to me is a lovely pet that I look at behind the glass screen at the zoo. Okay? What is a lion if you live in a rural environment? It's a predator. It's a predator. So our adversary of the devil is, is, is calling to his bidding a being or a creature or something that is a predator. The fact that there's four of them suggests that this is a particularly ferocious adversary. Okay, this is a particular ferocious adversary. How do you think the early Christians thought of this beast? So if they, if they read the devil, the dragon had been as a, the devil, and that he's summoning a beast to, for a, obviously to assault the church, how do you think the early church would have read that? Who do you think they were thinking of? What powers do you think they were thinking of? Let me ask you this question. Who was the ferocious beast that was intent on destroying the church when this book was written, or, or around that period? Yeah. Yeah. And particularly one, just after this letter at least, there was one Roman in particular who did t 
terrible damage to the church. Do you know him? His name begins with a Ner? Nero. Nero, we'll come into that. So the early Jews who read it in the idealistic way thought this was speaking about Nero. Here's, here's what a commentator says. The number of seven heads and the ten horns emphasize, or emphasis, emphasize the completeness of oppression, power, and effectiveness. So here's some of the numbers. Look, because we're just delving into two, one chapter, I can't give you all of uh, the, the keys, but just briefly, the numbers mean something. In the idealistic view, numbers mean something. Seven is a number of completeness or perfection. It's a number of God. Okay? Ten is a number of, of magnitude. Okay? Ultimate power. So can you see, if this beast has seven heads, uh, sorry, ten horns and seven heads, can you see what it's saying about this 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 force that Satan calls to his aid against the church, this beast is complete and all-powerful. So can you see how we're reading it? So the, the numbers and the images tell us things. He is both complete, he is everything you could want in a formidable creature, and he's all-powerful. All-powerful. And so here's where we're going, friends. Satan calls to his aid. Who does? So I already gave you a clue here. Who were the early church reading was the beast? And Graham said it earlier. Do you remember what you said? The Roman, the Roman Empire. I th it's my belief, and, and it is the, all others who hold this view, that who the, the adversary that the, the devil or his ally, his agent that he calls to assist him in his assault on the church is, the beast is, empires and governments. And I'm going to say that very cautiously and don't leave the building just yet because you're going to get, you're going to get away completely with the wrong end of the stick. I say that very cautiously and hear me out for the rest. This Remember, it's a general picture and, and John is writing, he's saying that the devil and adversary has at his disposal or arsenal in his assault against the church. The powers of our world. The governments of our world. The empires of our world. And look, that's not too hard to believe when we think about what Nero did to the church. And what the Roman Empire did for 300 years. And that's not difficult when we think of what Pol Pot did. Or what Hitler did. When he, who was Hitler's passion against? The Jewish people. Okay, so, but, but then you think of a, a Scott Morrison. And a, how, how do you balance these up? And here's another part of scripture. And I want to show you another part of scripture. It's uh, Romans 13. Would you just get it? What does Romans 13 say about empires and governments and rulers? What does Romans 13 tell us? That we're to respect them, submit to them, because they are established by God. So we, we come across our first challenge, don't we, in the idealistic view. If this piece really represents empires and governments and powers, how, do we, how, do, how does that correlate with Romans 13? How does that correlate with Jesus? Because contrary to what some of us thought, Jesus didn't publicly encourage rebellion against the state in fact when they tested him with a coin what did he say yeah he says do do what do as you're told 
Yeah, even the, the zealous wanted him. That's why they, they couldn't understand why Jesus, how he was the Messiah, because what did the zealots think he was going to do? He was going to overthrow the Romans, and he didn't do that. And so, as Christians, we're called to submit to, to respect authority. God is behind them, generally. And that's an important point there. Because it's okay for us to say, oh, God's behind governments. I mean, Scott Morrison is a professing Christian. We're not in Afghanistan, are we? Or, or, or Pakistan as a Christian. Or China as a Christian. And, and things are different there. So I think the point of this is, is that Satan does use the powers out there. But they're not all bad. They're not all evil. And very often they have very good intentions. Our government has very good intentions. And I want to say this to you. Our government isn't evil. Okay? They have good intentions towards us. You know, really, I'm sure they do. Okay? And so it's not that governments are evil, but it's that our adversary can use even good intentions against the church of Jesus Christ. You know that? I want to show you a video that illustrates this. This is contemporary. I got this this week from the internet to illustrate how this may look in our world where we've got good governments, where we are to come under the authority. Thank you. After a careful assessment of the facts and the law, the Justice Department has filed a lawsuit against the state of Texas. Our position is set out in detail in our complaint its basis is as follows. SB 8 bans nearly all abortions in the state after six weeks of pregnancy, before many women even know they are pregnant, and months before a pregnancy is viable. It does so even in cases of rape, sexual abuse, or incest. And it further prohibits any effort to aid the doctors who provide pre-viability abortions or the women who seek them. The act is clearly unconstitutional under long-standing Supreme Court precedent. The statute deputizes all private citizens without any showing of personal connection or injury to serve as bounty hunters, authorized to recover at least $10,000 per claim from individuals who facilitate a woman's exercise of her constitutional rights. The obvious an expressly acknowledged intention of this statutory scheme is to prevent women from exercising their constitutional rights by thwarting judicial review for as long as possible. Thus far, the law has had its intended effect. Because the statute makes it too risky for an abortion clinic to stay open, abortion providers have ceased providing services. This leaves women in Texas unable to exercise their constitutional rights and unable to obtain judicial review at the very moment they need it. This kind of scheme to nullify the Constitution of the United States is one that all Americans, whatever their politics or party, should fear. If it prevails, it may become a model for action in other areas, by other states, and with respect to other constitutional rights and judicial precedents. 
nor need one think long or hard to realize the damage that would be done to our society if states were allowed to implement laws that empower any private individual to infringe on another's constitutionally protected rights in this way. Did you catch that? Look, I'm not an American, but from what I know, I mean, the Biden government is a good government. They're good people. None of them are evil, I'm sure. And their intentions are good. But did you hear that? That, that there's a constitutional right for an American, and I'm going to use a, a strong term here, to assassinate unborn children. But no constitutional right at all for that little child. He uses terms like one individual cannot infringe on another and yet an individual can take away the constitutional rights of a little baby to live. Can you see what Revelation is saying to us? That the best governments with the best intentions Good people who we to respect can, can be used, can, can be a danger, not just to the Church of Christ, but to human existence, it seems. Look, we can see that with the Nero, we can see that with the Hitler. I mean, take Mugabe. Mugabe, how long? And here's the reality, you see. One of the things the Revelation is saying, verse 3, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was, was astonished and followed the beast. Verse 3 is telling us that when these forces, governments or powers, when they fall or when they change, nothing really changes. And this is what I meant by Mugabe. Mugabe ruled from, what, 1987 to 2017. When he fell, the person who rose after him, again, I'm not a Zimbabwean, but from what I know, things are no better in that country. And so the first point is this, that the beast is a picture generally of governments and authorities that are good. God has established them. We are to respect them. But even the best governments can be used by our adversary to assault human life, as in the case of the abortion law, or more generally, to assault the church. Our government is both our ally and our friend, and sometimes unwittingly can make it very, very difficult for the church of Christ. And I think that's what John is telling us there, just to be wary on our guards. I'm going to add, add a bit to that just before I finish. Secondly, his popularity, and I'm going to be quick with the rest of these, verses 4 to 6. I want you to notice how popular he is. Men worship the dragon, because he had given authority to the beast. They also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast, who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies, to exercise authority for 42 months. Just bear that in mind. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place of those who live in heaven. 42 months. So this beast is reigning for 42 months. It's a very familiar phrase in, in Revelation. It's three, it comes in three different ways. One is 42 months, chapter 13. 
One is 1,260 days, chapter 11, and one is times, times, and half a times, chapter 12. Now, if you read Revelation, you come across those figures, 1,260 days, times, times, and times again, uh, times, times, and times, half time rather, and 42 months. They're all the same period. So imagery again, all speaking about a brief period of three and a half years. If, if we read in Revelation as broad strokes, what do you think those three and a half years, what time span is this taking place? Remember, within those three and a half years, this beast is reigning. What time period do you think we're looking at? Just have a guess. Yes, from his birth to his return. So those 1,260 days or... 42 months or times, times and half a time are a time marker for the whole of the church age. So the beast reigns for the whole of the church age. And the thing about the beast, with the beast, uh, the beast, the beast, we just said, he's popular. I mean, who would think Hitler was popular? I mean, who would have thought Hitler was popular? Hitler was a hero of World War I. When he, he convinced the populace of Germany that the, not, uh, that the communists and the Jews were bad and didn't deserve to live. When, when he got into power in the elections, he had the biggest la landslide in political history. And when, when, those, when the Nazi party destroyed the Jews and anyone else they encountered, they didn't do it by force. Hitler didn't pay his army to assassinate Jews. They did it voluntarily. The thing about the beast is that he's worshipped. He has allies. And, okay, and here's the thing. So we can see that about Hitler. Mao had the same. Pol Pot did the same. You know, but surely no one would worship or support, you know, our governments today. I mean, I've mentioned Morrison's name, but half of Australia has got something bad to say about him. If you, if you follow the news this last week, the poor chap just went to see his family in New South Wales and has had it in the neck ever since, hasn't he? And you think, you know, you know in our age, we don't do that. And yet, look, here's what, here's what 2 Corinthians says. 2 Corinthians 4 the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We can be allies of the beast unsuspectedly, unsuspectingly. We can, I mean, take the abortion law. I mean, I want to argue to support something like that. We're unwittingly supporting the cause of our adversary. We are unwittingly glorying in our adversary. We're unwittingly supporting powers that ultimately are denying the glory of God. So the second point is this, is that governments and ideologies and forces and powers are and can be very, very popular and can even be supporting them without even knowing it. Third one, I need, I need to be quicker. 
what is his purpose? What is the chief purpose of Satan? We've already said it. His chief purpose, the reason he arouses his enemy from the, from the sea is to destroy the church of Christ. Verses 7 and 8. He was given power to make war against the saints. That is us. I mean, I, don't want, I, know, we, I know we don't often think of ourselves like this, but we are saints in Jesus' eyes. To war against the saints and to conquer them. What's his purpose? To destroy us. And he was given authority over every tribe, people and language. I mean, he's got power over the whole earth. All inhabitants of, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. I want to say something here without being unkind to our world. Is that we're either with Jesus or we stand opposed to Jesus. We know that, don't we? Remember what Jesus said? If you're not with me, you're against me. There are only two groups of people in our world. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and those who are. Look, the world is full of beautiful people. And you know, some of the most, you know, sometimes there are more beautiful people out there than in here sometimes. We know we can be real mean to each other, can't we? <laughs> Seriously. They're not bad people. You know, they're not wicked people. That are our neighbours, our friends, our colleagues, our family, our sons and daughters, mums and dads. But one thing Revelation is saying is that there's only two groups of people in our world. Those whose names are in the Lamb's book and those who are not. And those whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life serve the cause in some way in a general way. It doesn't mean my neighbour is doing something that's anti-church. They're not. I've got a decent neighbour. In fact, he wanted me to tell you guys he's got an office desk. If you guys want one, if somebody wants an office desk, there's one available from my neighbour, a very good one. But what Jesus is, has illustrated, what Revelation is just re-emphasising, is that if we're not with Jesus, we are in some way supporting the cause against Jesus. And that's a very real scenario in our world is that the purpose of our adversary is to destroy the church and Satan will use not just only the governments of our world, good governments as well as bad, but in some sense, if we're not with Jesus, we're standing against his cause. And sometimes the actions of our lovely neighbours can be detrimental to the impact and advance of the church. You know, when, when the second time I mentioned America today, please forgive me. Okay? It's just because they're always on the news, aren't they? But, you know, the, the, the Americans with the Allies, the Britain, and, and I'm sure, I don't know if Australia, was Australia involved in the First and Second Gulf Wars? Of course they were. I'm sure they were, weren't they? Yeah? Okay. Well, I'm assuming they were. Look, they went in the first time, you know, Saddam was left in place. You know, when they went in the second time, they had good intentions. They wanted to, to liberate oppressed people. You know, they wanted to move a despot out of power. But do you know what the Christians were praying in Iraq before the invasion of the Second World? I've heard this from, uh, from Christian missionaries. Do you know what the Christians were praying before the Second Invasion? Does anybody know? God, please don't let them in. Who? 
the Allies. Because on the Saturn, believe it or not, this is the testimony of some Christians, there was a certain level of freedom to worship in safety. Do you know what happened after the invasion? Uh, so the liberation? Christians could no longer meet with the same level of security. And I think what Revelation is saying is that, is that the best of intentions by the best of our governments and the best people of our world can ultimately serve our enemy's purpose. Here's what Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. And I think one of the things Revelation is preparing us for is just to be prepared that whether from good or bad, we're under the focus and the attack of an enemy who wants to destroy us. And the last thing I want to say, because I need to finish, the last thing, our task. What do we do in all this? Verses 9 and 10. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let me ask you, who has an ear? Of, of what group in the world has an ear? Every person, animal, being. Yeah. Not quite right, Nicky. You know, you know we would have been there. Uh, no, so, so, spiritually speaking, I didn't say that. Let me say it again. Spiritually speaking, who has an ear? The believers. You're the only one. Look, I can show you this. My lovely neighbour is a great fellow. We often have a chat. If I show him the Bible, he looks at it and he cannot hear the thing I'm saying. Because they don't have an ear. You have an ear. Hey, what a great thing that you have an ear. And here's what, is, what is the Bible saying. If you've got an ear, listen, here's what it says. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, the sword will be, he'll be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. The simple truth that the apostle is telling us is this. This is why he's writing Revelation. He's writing Revelation to a church in persecution and they're asking themselves, what is going on here, John? Where is Jesus? What is this about? It's not what I signed up for. And John is writing to them and he's telling them, hey, this is how it is. This is how it is. It's futile. We're not that saying resistance is futile. You know, for us to expect that our lives are going to be easy and that our government's going to always pass legislation that's good for us and you know, you know, all our neighbours are wonderful and they'll, you know, they'll never support anything that's anti-Christian because they're great people. Do you know, bad things happen in this world. We're to be ready for it. The church will be persecuted and it is a reality. We keep saying this and it may happen one day. We may not be able to get a licence to meet in a public place. Seriously. You know, I, we might not be able to say some of the you know, stuff that we do say. It's going to be difficult in this world. We're to expect it. The Christian life will be difficult. There will be those who go into captivity. There will be those who are killed. But here's, for the faith we mean, and here's our response. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. What does Jesus want us to do as things get difficult? As, as governments rise who perhaps are more ill-intended towards the church or even as well-intended governments pass legislation that are just harmful for us. I mean, look at the free speech legislation. That wasn't intended, I don't believe, 
to be ill towards the church, but it can be used for our ill. What are we to do? We're to persevere. We're to patiently endure. We're to press on. We're to hold on. We're to keep meeting. Look, it's lovely to see so many here this morning. But you know what will happen as it becomes harder for us to meet? Okay, say for example if we can't meet here and now we've got to go meet in the park because there's no legislation there. You know what is tempting then for some of our members? Maybe for me? It's a bit cold out in, <laughs> out in the city. It'll be cold this morning. You know, I think I'll just stay in today. And what is John saying? He's saying, hey, don't. These things will happen. But we can't stop them. Because here's one thing I haven't dealt with in these verses. I haven't had time. Who was given the authority to the dragon? Because he said he was given the authority. And this is a scary thought. Who was given him the authority? Yes. There's something we have to understand. We watch all this and we see our adversary at work. And I'm saying he can use even the best governments against the church, you know, even with good intentions. God is allowing this to occur. Here's, this is a hard thing to say. But there is not a Christian who has been put to death for the gospel where God hasn't sanctioned it. Do you get that? You get that, don't you? There's, there's not an ill that befalls us that God doesn't authorize. You can't have two kings in this world. Either God is God or he's not. Okay? And so here's a reality the Revelation 13 is dealing with. It's going to be difficult. Okay? Life is pretty difficult now for some people. But we're to patiently endure. Let me give you one verse. I'm going to finish with this. Um, I know your afflictions, Revelations 2, and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in, per in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days, which is a complete number of days, a large number of days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Hey, Christian. Let's press on. That's one of the chief messages of Revelation. Press on. Let me tell you this. When our government passes legislation that, that is not helpful, we're not to be in arms and be shooting down Mr. Morrison and slandering his name. And That's a horrible thing to do. Governments are established by God. But governments can be used by adversary. And so we... We, 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 we do the march in, in Adelaide like we did for the, for the unborn children last year, remember? The march for life. We do that. And we make the voice of God heard. Or we write to our premier and say, look, I don't think what you're doing here is a good thing. Are you aware that this is injuring the liberties of the church of Jesus? Sometimes it means that we support open doors or... or, or or the Barnabas the people who support the persecuted church. In fact, here, look, I'm going to say something that we're going to, we, we could do with talking about as leaders. Do you know, of all the missions that we support, what is the number one mission we should be supporting? 
the mission that supports the persecuted church. We have brothers and sisters around the world who have been hounded to death, who need some support. Can I encourage us? You know, when we pray for, for the service every Sunday, Lorraine and I, you organise that, could we just remember the persecuted church? Our brothers and sisters in difficulty. So Christian, press on, hold on. Revelation 13 is telling us that we have an adversary. He uses even good governments. He doesn't use his bad ones. We're not to resist them. We're to pray for them. But we're to be mindful that they can bring opposition to us. Our response is to be faithful to God, to respect our established authorities, and to make our voice heard in a lawful way, and to press on in our faith, to keep meeting don't give up. And can I say this one last thing? Certainly don't miss coming to church when we can be here because one day we may not be able to get a license to hire a building and then we'll be struggling to meet. Press on, Christian. And come back in a fortnight and we're going to look at the mark of the beast and buying and selling and what that looks like under the broad paint strokes of imagery okay thank you